The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everyone? Welcome into episode three of season two of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factory Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week, I am sitting down with one of my favorite drummers and people on the planet, the great Todd Zuckerman. Uh, we start out having a laugh about technology and you know, how it feels to be back on the road, and then we deep dive into some gear talk. Todd has one of the coolest um, drum rooms I've ever seen. Never seen in person yet, but uh, go check out some of his views of him in the studio. It's just like a, it's a literal candy store for drummers with drums everywhere and kits mic'd up. So. This is a fun one. We talk about all sorts of stuff. So let's get into it. The great Todd Zuckerman. So everybody asks me what happens before you hit record. And what happened, Todd? What just happened before we hit record? Well, before we hit record, every time I come out to my studio, there's some new jack-in-the-box. What's not going to work, right? What, what did something to, you know, and my engineer, J.R. Taylor, I love him. Like, he helps me. And like I came out here and I had unplugged. The first thing was I unplugged my microphone. And I'm like, I did that a couple of days ago. Wait, I have no audio. I have no audio. So there's that. There's one thing on top of another. Then your voice is trans, it's going through. I got to wear in-ear monitors and it's really loud and there's no volume control. There is somewhere in the, in the uh, International Space Station that is my recording studio that I couldn't run. If you said, hey, Todd, can you record a single snare drum hit for me in a Pro Tools session for a million dollars? I would say... Nope. Can't do, it. Can't do it. My loss. I can record it on here on a phone. You is it will that if I go like, um, but no, I none of that if it I can't run any of that stuff. So how happy are you to be back on the road? <laughs> can can you tell? Um, you know, well, yeah, it's, I, you know, I'm thrilled and elated. It's also freaky as hell, to be honest with you, because, um, really? you know, uh, boy, if I, you know, if I wasn't a sort of bit of a germaphobe before uh, all of this the last two years, um, you know, I, I have to say we've just completed 52 shows since June 16th, 100% uh, healthy uh, band and crew, and we have very strict uh protocols in place and regimens and you know we're largely sequestered from hotel to a dead backstage no guests no friends no like hey i got a you know a buddy that lives in this town no day lunch visits it's a bummer but it's a necessity to be able to get through this um safely and well just to be able to get through it period mm -hmm. uh, so, but it's it's been it's been great to uh, obviously reconnect with you know the band and crew or their family. You know, it's been twenty five years for me, and we've had largely you know a lot of the same crew for for decades. Um, so yeah, it's it's been great. But and I, I have to tell you, I think this is the first time I've powered up Zoom in probably probably since May. So that's kind of amazing. Mm, and you were I'm sure you're just living on that before that. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> as 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 uh, so many of us were, uh, it was a necessity. Um, 
obviously. And, and, and you know, uh, it, it's, I'm, I'm grateful and thankful for technology like that because I was able to teach. I was able to do some master classes. Um, and actually, you know, that's, that's how we did uh, Crash of the Crown, the, the Styx record that, that came out in June. The June previously of, of 2020, they were trying to get me to go to Nashville and record the record, um, which I was supposed to do in April. And then obviously the world shut down in, in March of, of uh, 2020. So um, I discovered a, a program called uh, Audio Movers Listen To, where my engineer could, or any engineer anywhere in the world can drive my rig from their home safely like a screen share. And then the participants get an invite link that is full high resolution audio. So Tommy and Wolovankovic, you know, Tommy Sean Wolovankovic are pretty much producing the record could be in their studios listening. And then we got on a zoom call. And if someone said, Hmm, you know, how about a different fill going into the second chorus, you know, JR punch me in boom. And we, we did it that way. We did 17 songs in three days. So, uh, you know, technology <laughs> that exists like this now, uh, I mean, it, it, it pretty much put me back in business during the pandemic. So I'm really grateful and thankful for it. That's wild. So how did that recording experience compare to what you've done with the band in the past? Um, I was home for one, right. uh, <laughs> which was nice. Uh, it, it was one of those things where doing that record was the first time that I, I used audio movers. I've used it hundreds of times since, but I kept waiting for the big issue or the big crash. It's something, uh, you know, that would take hours to fix or figure out and it never happened it's worked flawlessly mm -hmm. uh every time so the the thing that was you know it's always nice being in a a big gazillion dollar studio complex it's always fun and exciting but it's also fun to be here because all my stuff is here mm -hmm. if for some reason a snare drum wasn't working with the track well there's others to choose from you know all my cymbals all my percussion everything's right here all of a sudden someone gets an idea and you know it's right here. So that was, that was nice. I mean, I, you know, you obviously miss the human connection of being in the same room or listening back on the bigs, you know, in a, a studio. Um, but it was, it was a very easy, breezy, uh, happy experience to do it this way from home. <clears throat> How was that first show back? I mean, have you, you hadn't seen the kit or anything, right? I mean, did you do any rehearsals? I mean, what was the, what was the, Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause we had, you know, you know, we, we basically play about a hundred shows a year and for a band that plays that much and it's, they're always, it's peppered throughout the calendar. So it's not like we tour from, you know, May to September and then I don't see everyone until next year. There's shows all through the year. So that keeps us a well-oiled and lubricated machine with a lot of moving parts. When you take that much time off after working like that, it's basically like taking six or seven years off. Mm. That, that, it's, it's like that time, uh, it gets accelerated. So it definitely took a couple of weeks for us to sort of get our sea legs back, so to speak. But we, we went to, our first show was in St. Augustine, Florida. And so we went to St. Augustine and we had, I think, three days of rehearsals uh, before we started. So we, we worked pretty hard. And then when the crew was working, we'd be back in the dressing room. We have a little rig back there um, with little mini amps and stuff that, that we can work on, on, uh, on material. 
But it was very, it was A, exciting, and it was also a little bit of butterflies because it was a little shaky getting mm. back. Um, so it was sort of all hands on deck <laughs> mentally and physically. What do I do here? What, you know, that, that, uh, that second nature feeling was not really there. You really had to think about it. So uh, I couldn't get caught up in uh, emotional feelings or, or teariness because there was a job to do and it required all of our collective full concentration. Um, the, the one thing I did notice the first few shows, um, it, it was apparent to me that the audience, it was for many of them, their first time out in a crowd, you know, in 16 months or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. So you'd see like families of four kind of huddled, huddled a little closer together. <laughs> Everyone was be like, yeah, I want to be out. And then we get out there like, well, they sort of forgot how to, how to be in a crowd. Um, but that, that didn't last long until things seemed to um, morph into a, a sense of normality. But those first couple of shows, you'd see fam families mm -hmm. huddled a little closer <clears throat> together, and it took them just a little longer to kind of loosen up because they were freaked out about being in a crowd. I was freaked out the first time I was around a bunch of people. Okay. You know, I remember going up, standing up to, to going up to vote in a line for three hours, and like the dude behind me was like, "Come on, man! Like everyone's doing the thing here. Do you want to be where I am? Is that you know?" <laughs> So anyway, how'd your hands hold up? Were they were they soft and, and <laughs> weak? Or how were you feeling? <laughs> well, I, I tell you, Mike. You know, I, I kept I kept really busy out here. Thankfully, um, with doing a lot of records and a lot of projects, and also just trying to keep myself in shape. I'm not one to you know lie on the couch and and go through a bag of cookies by any stretch. Um, I, I do like to. To spend a lot of time here so i kept myself in shape but it wasn't until the last week that the little voice inside my uh inside my hand i guess um <laughs> said hey you know you haven't played through the show do you think that would be a good idea and i thought uh ah, i'm sure it's fine and then there's like really what ha okay so i came out here i played through the show and it was it was a it was a breeze that mm. made me feel good. I, I freaked myself out for a moment about it, uh, but I came out here and it was it was totally fine and I was I was ready to go. Sweet. All right, you are in the drummer's dream house. There, I think you might have been one of the first people I remember making a dedicated drum room early on. Is that the same one from years ago, or is this a different one? No, I I had one when I lived in Los Angeles uh, that was a little smaller than this. Um, so it's going to be 16 years in December that I've been here. So this, this is a, a 22 by 22 structure that was built, uh, in the, the back of, back of the backyard. Um, that's basically just a soundproof box. The, the, the idea was first and foremost, have a place to play that I could come out here at any hour and not disturb a soul. Um, so that was the you know, the, the, the first thing that had to be nailed. Um, and the room actually sounds a lot more live than you'd think with it being carpeted, carpeting on the walls, foam on the walls, foam on the ceiling, because there's so many reflective hard surfaces in here all the way around that um, I just lucked out with sort of how nice it sounds in here. Mm -hmm. um, but 
you know, the, things happen by necessity. Drummer needs a place to play. Then drummer needs a recording studio. And then drummer needs a film studio. So <laughs> I was going to ask about that. How has he evolved? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know, uh, I've, I've been doing, uh, I've been one of the Drumeo coaches this last year, and that kind of lit a fire uh, under me that I had to get some technology here and uh, ATEM and GoPros and, and and get a whole little, you know, like got a little switcheroo thing going mm -hmm. on here, with, you know, multicams. So I could A, do the Drumeo gig, B, with the pandemic, I could teach or do master classes. Um, and it turned out to be a great resource for doing recording sessions because if someone gave me um, a whole album's worth of songs to record or a couple songs, I could load it in and do a little film clip and, you know, sort of ask the artist like this, is this groove cool or whatever, to send them little clips so they could see it and hear it. And it turned out to be a really useful uh, tool in that regard in trying to please clients, you know. What is your uh, current kit there? Is that a new kit? Or is it this yeah this is a, a masterworks that's new as of 2018 uh that's been sitting on the gold rack that i've had since 2010. so i had a different at a bubinga masterworks kit here that uh, was retired in 2018 when i got these so this is uh the um the uh, studio series which is a uh, maple gum with black limba uh, you can kind of see the black limba mm -hmm. based in there uh yeah no that's probably the, the the best view so yeah this this has been the main kit that's been here um since 2018 you know snare drums swap out cymbals obviously um and i've used back if you can see there what is that yellow thing <laughs> that, that, that's the that's the cantaloupe monstrosity that is a 1978 uh premiere uh it's basically like an octopus six through sixteen Contra Toms, 16, 18 floor Toms, uh, 222 uh, Premier Snare, full lockfast hardware, where most of that was uh, at uh, Bentley's Drums in Fresno. Dana has a museum that's invite only in his shop, and he had these in there. And I said, Dana, what's the deal with these? I'd never seen the polychromatic gold in, in person before, because Keith Moon used that in 74 on the, the 74 tour. And he said the the original owner of that kit bought it the week Keith Moon died or ordered it the week Keith Moon died as a tribute and Dana was the second owner. So um, I didn't know that I'd fall in love. That's this out of the normal thing that I would gravitate towards. But Keith Moon and Phil Collins loom large in my life. And um, I said, uh, Dana, I, I, we got to work something out. I, I, would you you know, could we work something out for, out for those drums? Uh, and then I, I had uh, dinner with Gavin Harrison when he came through town right after that. And he knew a guy named Mike Ellis in England, who's like the premier guy. So he found me the six, eight, 10, um, wait, and a 12. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the high time six, eight, 10, 12, he, he found for me in England. So I bought those to have the completed, uh, octopus kit so it, it's it's kind of fun i've used those a lot for overdubs um you, you just put two omnidirectional mics and all of a sudden it's uh your phil collins abacab sound there it's it's, it's incredible <laughs> that's amazing they, 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 they just make of, you smile when you walk in the room first of all <laughs> yeah it, it's like it it's 
it goes against the grain about what I, I normally fall in love with. But they're absolutely gorgeous. They sort of sound terrible. They sound like timbali boxes acoustically, but put a couple microphones out in front of them and you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's Abacab. It's amazing. So with your, your main kit there, do you kind of just leave it set up and only use the drums that you need to hit or do you remove drums? I'm always worried about sympathetic hum and all that kind of stuff. No, I, I'm not worried about that at all. I mean, if, I, if I'm doing a piece that is just, you know, snare drum brushes, kick and hat, I, I leave everything there. Or if it's a Ringo sounding thing, I mean, I, I always say, you know, there's a four piece drum set in here. You know, even though we have what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight toms, there's a four piece drum set in here. And I, I remember posting, I was doing some like smooth jazz session and I'm like smooth jazz session today. And someone wrote, with all that, you need all that. And I'm like, well, just cause it's here doesn't mean that I have to hit everything on every song. There is a four piece drum set in here. I just play. You know what I mean? A guitar has all the notes. Not every song mm -hmm. utilizes all the notes. So it's pretty much the, the, the same the same thing, the, the way I look at it anyway. That's interesting because whenever I sit behind a bigger kit, I feel like I my vocabulary shifts. Even if I don't hit the eight, for some reason I can't play like Ringo. On a, if I sat behind that kit, I just couldn't play a Ringo beat. <laughs> I don't know why. Psychologically. I mean, I mean for, for me, I just, I, you know, I, I look at, at this, the rack one or if i want the 12 sound i use th use this and the 16 and the 12 and the 16 are the only drums that are hit because i'm i'm calling on those sounds i'm not letting the um the location of the drums or the amount of real estate that is taken up by other things dictate the choices i still if i hear i'm just going to play the 12 and the 16 mm -hmm. even though mm -hmm. even though i got to go here and here for those you know is that a exact parallel to your live rig? Uh, it, it is now. Um, I just changed the live rig over where I had two bass drums with the four Tom 6, 8, 10, 12 in front. But it, it was a little bit of a reach. It was starting to get a little bit of a reach as I get on in my years here and um, my back gets uh, more rickety and creaky. I wanted to move those things up a little bit. So I moved the six to the other side of the hi-hats, uh, moved the 8, 10, 12, so the, just three in front, and I was able to shift you know, three floor toms and a gong drum and all the, the, the cymbals just over a couple inches. And you know, you know, a couple inches is a huge deal especially if you're like me and, and you're cursed with the uh, if something's like three millimeters out of place it drives you crazy until you can stop in between songs and, and move it where it's supposed to be three millimeters over to the left so three inches is like the grand canyon what is the most crucial piece throne height snare height hi-hat height what what if what's the one that would throw you off the most uh, th definitely the relationship to the snare drum. So, so th thrown height to, to snare drum, uh, especially because I play mostly traditional grip. I also play this way. I mean, I'm kind of 60, 40, um, and playing traditional grip, I think requires a relationship with a higher snare drum. So, so, so the, there's more of a parallel line between the arm and the ground if the snare drum is too low like a lot of match grip players have and you try to play traditional grip now, now you're you're 
you're hitting something like this. And it could be painful that way. But right here, it's a karate chop. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's like table height. I could have my laptop here. I could write a letter. It's right here. And I can put my, my hands on it and my shoulders are down and I'm relaxed and I'm sitting up, up straight. So uh, it's totally comfort, comfortable for me, I think for anyone, especially if you're playing traditional grip. <clears throat> what is that snare? Uh, this one is sort of the latest uh, acquisition. This is a uh, pearl stavecraft macaw, which is an Asian wood um, stave drum, six and a half by 14, and it's a 25 millimeter shell. It's really thick. I don't know if you can see this in there at all. That's a monster. And it's got this dotto lock system, which those are other pieces of wood that are in there to strengthen the staves. So yeah, it's 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 a thick that's a thick boy there. So what sound is that giving you? Um, I think this should be going through the system right now. It's 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 singing wide open. I could actually. Does this sound okay? Yeah, <laughs> that's got a lot of sound. So yeah. It, <laughs> It's, it's got a lot of body. It's got a lot of ring. Um, and yeah, and for, for a drum that thick, it, it certainly has a, has some meat and it has some cut to it. There's a nice throat to it as well. Do you have like a getting to know you period with snares, like a process you go through? Yeah, I, I generally spend a few days and I mess around with the tunings. Uh, I play to a couple different tracks and in, in, in here and, and see how they, they work within certain pieces of music. So I, I like to spend some time with each drum and then I want to, I want to learn its best attributes of what it, it excels at. So when I'm presented with a piece of music, I can sit here and I could look around and go, ah, you know, that one, that one's going to fit really well in this piece of music. Um, so that, that's, that's what I normally do. Hold on. Something has popped up here on my computer and all my alerts are off. Uh -oh. Okay, mail. Goodbye, mail. <laughs> I just think how mail just comes up like boom and just knocks half your screen away. I don't need that. I'll check you later, email. I don't need you to check me. True that. Get out of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so... What is the starting point? Do you, do you usually turn them all? Like if you get five new drums in a day, hypothetically, would you tune them all identically to start? I mean, how, where, do you, where do you start? Well, my thing is, in my opinion, which I respect. Uh, no, sorry. That's my, fa that's my favorite joke of all time. <laughs> that's, that's my favorite joke of all time. Um, no, in my opinion, a Remo coded ambassador is the, the benchmark. I, I can't tell what a drum can do if it doesn't have one of those heads on it. Because to me, it has the most ring, the most sustain, the most highs, mids and, and lows possible. Um, it is just it's, it's, it's the, the benchmark of sound to me. So uh, just about every drum in here is fitted with the Remo coded ambassador. So I, I would I would spend some time tuning it up and down, playing around with it. Um, I've never gotten five snare drums in one day. That sounds like a fun day. Um, <laughs> it's a nice little fantasy. Uh, 
but and I would just I, I would play it for a little bit with no hearing protection, just just hearing it naturally. Um, and then it's it's time to put these in and and put a microphone on it and see what what happens. Um, you know, I, I I'm not really gigging out anymore. Uh, I did when I lived in Los Angeles, so I could sort of take things out and, and play club dates uh, with it. So that was a, another thing that was nice of, of getting to know drums. Um, case in point, out of this, this might be a dumb story. It might be interesting. Uh, a buddy of mine, Peter Miller, is a drummer that lived in uh, Redondo Beach. And I used to play this place called uh, Ponchos in Manhattan Beach. And we were getting into a whole die cast versus triple flanged debate. Uh, and I said, okay, so next weekend when I'm playing Ponchos, I'm going to bring both my six and a half black beauties. One has a die cast, one has triple flange. Let's put it to the ponchos test. So I played the first set, uh, triple flange, second set die cast. And I met him at the bar and we both sat down, ordered a drink, looked at each other and said, triple flange. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Tri triple flange won the day that night in that room. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's, it's fun to experiment with different things. Also, I've had the, the experience where I've had, you know, $7,000 snare drums on a, a session. And for whatever reason, someone behind the glass isn't happy. And then someone says, Hey, could you try using the studios snare drum and like this, some like CB 700 with a pinstripe with a piece of carpet on there. I'm like, really? And I'd hit that. And all of a sudden behind the glass, someone's going, mm. <laughs> all right, and then play it and then go in there and listen to it back and wouldn't you know that won the day because it was tuesday because it was that studio with that microphone with that engineer or that piece of music that drum won the day and sometimes something can sound absolutely horrible to your ear but through a microphone and whatever in 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 the the, the studio it sounds like a million dollars Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. So are all those drums tuned slightly differently for each? Like they all have their own happy spot? I think they all have a, a, a definite... Um, <clears throat> yeah, a happy spot. That, that That's a good way to put it. I think the better the drum, the the bigger the happy spot. There's certain things like, you know, if I want a super fudge brick baseball bat and the birthday cake, um, you know, like the Donut Milkwood is great at that. I got a couple of 15s, Bayer Steel 15, um, a Mahogany Sensitone, Pearl, um, the Stanbridge uh, Purple Heart Pink Ivory that if you tune it down into almost flat territory, you'll need three moon gels to take the tone out of it because that drum has so much tone, even at that tuning. Um, 
But then all of a sudden you, you listen back through the speakers and you're getting a banana cream pie in the face mm. uh, with that <laughs> drum. So there's certain things that if I'm trying to evoke a certain vibe, um, you know, what, something I, I got somewhat, well, in the last two years, uh, it would be th that one. That's like the Stuart Copeland Pearl. That's like a 1976. Uh, it's, it's not a Jupiter. A lot of people call it a Jupiter. Jupiter is a different throw, but it's a, it's a chrome over brass. And the vent hole is at the bottom. That's how you know it's the Stuart Copeland. And then you throw a die cast on the top, like, like he did in a triple flanged on the bottom. And lo and behold, that's, <laughs> that's the sound. That's the drum that he used on Zenyatta Mandata, Ghost Machine, Synchronicity, and all those tours. So if I'm, if, if I, I'm trying to evoke something like that, that drum might get the call, you know? Is there like your um, home base snare that if you just want to have a drum up for any purpose, I'll start here. I know Matt Chamberlain said it was a nickel over brass graviato and like... No, I, I, I don't because, you know, certainly anything that's newer in the collection has an advantage of that time period just because it's new and it's exciting and I want to bring something into the rotation. Um, but, you know, if someone says to me, like a lot of times, like, oh, I, I want, you know, like a Black Beauty thing, I might pull out the um, Joyful Noise Bronze Elite. Mm. which sometimes is a little bit like a, a Ludwig on steroids. Same thing, I'm, I might pull out um, the Dinette Titanium if someone says John Bonham. That drum sort of screams Bonham to me uh, over some of the Ludwigs that, that I have. But, you know, th there's, there's not a dog in this bunch or it wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I have gotten rid of a couple snare drums that I, th I thought were um sort of beige you know that didn't really do anything for me um but ev everything everything sort of serves a, a, a purpose another thing is if i come out here and it's time to to practice and all of a sudden i sit down and i play and i'm not particularly inspired or all of a sudden my 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 mind starts to wander and my interest starts to wane I know that, okay, so, swap something out. And I might look up and see a drum and go, you know what, I haven't pulled you out in over a year. And I'll pull that drum out and I'll sort of fall in love all over again. And all of a sudden, it's, it's inspiring me. It's inspiring ideas out of me that I, I wasn't playing three minutes earlier. That is sort of one of the reasons why I have all these things. I mean, if, okay. If I were to sort of psychoanalyze myself, I'd go back to being a little kid and my father was a doctor and he was a drummer and his uh, practice, his office was only a couple blocks away from Frank's Drum Shop and Drums Limited. So on Wednesdays and Saturdays, my dad worked half days and sometimes I'd go down and spend a day, half day in his, his office and we'd always go to Drums Limited and, and Frank's afterwards. And that experience of being a kid and going into this weird David Lynchian elevator with a little old guy with the you know with the, the hat running the elevator and you, you go up to whatever the sixth floor and this door is open 
And all of a sudden, it was floor-to-ceiling drums and gongs and chimes and cymbals. You didn't know where to look or where to walk first. And that was very much a magical feeling, like Willy Wonka when they walk in and they see, you know, the gumdrop waterfalls and the chocolate river for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I think I wanted to create that that sort of temple, that sort of thing for every time I come out here. Because if I come out here and I'm not inspired, just put a bullet in my head, right? You know, I, I, should, real, I yeah. should come out here and like change out a pair of hi-hats. You know, put two 17-inch crash cymbals up there. And now I'm playing some weird, you know, murky 6-8 thing that I wasn't playing earlier. Change out the ride cymbal. Um, change out the snare drum. And I, and I have three kits in here. You know, the, the, the cantaloupe monstrosity premieres this one and i have my dad's four-piece uh slingerland with an 18-inch bass drum so all of a sudden boom i can go over there and i can be in jazz world i can go over here and i can be in stupid aggressive tom tom world and then i could be in serious world over here you know so i can i i can come out here and there's always something to be inspired by or something to try um so the, the drums have their purpose for that reason, as well as tools to document music, to, to, to do a job. Is there a perfect snare drum sound? I, I, I can't say yes to that because per perfect for what? what? What's, what's the music? Your idea of a perfect snare drum sound might be different than mine, and you might hear something different in a piece of music that may or may not work with it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like if, if something's like really earthy and low, you might not pull out, um, you know, a really brash, you know, like metal piccolo drum. You might want to stick with something that's uh, earthy, wood, a little deeper, 14 by 7, tune it down, maybe play it with a mallet. Uh, you know what I mean? So it, it's the music world dictate it'll point me in a direction and then it's up to me to find a direction where i think this is the right sound and that now it's a collaborative thing because i'm working with someone else uh who will have an executive say over it so i'm also trying to please uh an artist or a producer or whatever to help bring their vision even further than they imagined it that that's what i like to do or all of a sudden you, what, let, let's try this and all of a sudden now they're really excited about it uh -huh. you know uh -huh. so that that's that's what i i try to do and i i don't want something just to be fine or or that works i want i want us all to be excited about it okay so, so what if i said i'm i need three examples of what you think are the perfectly recorded drums in the history of music <laughs> uh you, you know well, i just thought about this the other day and it's only because this is in the forefront of my mind um one of the cds i always use to test out speakers with is a joe jackson's uh, big world and that's okay. gary burke okay. on drums and he's, he's playing a gretsch kit i don't know what his snare drum is on that but I think the, the, the drums on that are absolutely beautiful. Um, speaking of Stuart, Stuart Copeland, synchronicity doesn't suck. Mm. That's, that's pretty great. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to think of 10 different things, you know, later on tonight that I, I could have said here. 
Um, boy, perfectly recorded drums. Mm, well, that's that's sort of two. I mean, to to me, the the benchmark tom sound was always Steve Smith with Journey. Uh, there's something special about the way, uh, like escape sounds that, that e even though that might be sort of vintage now, <laughs> the, 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 the aquatic tone of those toms, which are the classic sonar phonic, uh, you know, nine pipe beachwood toms. Um, yeah, that's, 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 that's always been my benchmark for, for tom sounds. So yeah, yeah I'll say escape. All right, let's shift into building parts for tracks. <clears throat> I think if maybe I'm, it, I mean, it's, when I think of your drumming, I think it's very deliberate, it's very clean, and there's always some sort of narrative arc to what you play. Um, is that accurate? <laughs> and, oh, that, and uh, thanks. What is um, your process? Like, if you get a track, how much of it is on you versus what might be in a demo? Well, it's been a long time since I've received a piece of music that has no drums and someone says, do whatever you want. It's been a while for that. And maybe that muscle, uh, I don't want to say is atrophied, but it's, it certainly hasn't been exercised in a while. Um, so norm normally I'll get a piece of music that has some sort of at least simple programming. That, that will at least give me a guide of what the composer sort of wants. And if it's a fairly simple song where it's like doom ga doom doom ga doom ga doom doom ga and I go, well, this works with the song, this works with uh the the baseline, what's what's there, that will be my starting point. And I'll think about shaping the piece of music. If it's hi hat, if I'm opening up the hi-hat on the end of four every two bars every four bars whatever or maybe bu build it up where it's every four bars and then to every two bars in the chorus when to go to the ride symbol um you know when, when to let the sun shine in or when to have a couple oceanic drinks of water from the symbols keep it dry for a bit i will consider um all of these like 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 you're painting colors on on, on a palette um i i try to have it be as much of a blank slate as possible. The, 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 the beat of the bass drum and snare drum would be like the blueprints. Everything else is going to be, you know, what sort of faucets would you like? Where, how big a clot, you know, all those things are the, 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 the ornaments of building a house, so to speak, but you got to have the foundation. So the first thing to figure out is the bass drum and snare drum pattern, how it changes from section to section, M make it build where to decrescendo is the bridge going up is the bridge going down. Um, and so you have to have an overview of the whole piece of music. Where, where's it going? What's your roadmap? So as soon as the foundation is, is built with bass drum and snare drum throughout, then I'll, I'll let, uh, um, a little bit of inspiration or time. I might have a piece of music for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And over time, certain things are coming into focus. So at that point, my choices would be very deliberate because now I'm, I'm, I'm painting a picture. Mm -hmm. I'm designing a house, whatever, you know, analogy you, you want to make. 
Um, you know, I feel I'm, you know, I, I don't have like a, a gift that Vinnie Caliuta has where he can just, you know, he, he can just, you know, crap Mona Lisa's on command all the time. That's an incredible thing to, to be able to do. Um, but I, I like to, if I have the time to sit and consider what the best choices would be for a track. And in that regard, I come very much from um, a non-improvisational place. There might always be room for some magic to happen, but if I'm playing non-improvisational uh, non music, you know what I mean? It's like with, with rock and roll, with, with sticks. I have to go out and I have to, I have to draw the same picture mm. pretty much every time. If you choose a life in rock, you have to go, and I want to paint this Mona Lisa. I got to do it again. And there might be a little something different, but that, that, that was my choice. It's not a jam band. It's not an improvisational band. It's not jazz. I'm not reacting to different soul. You know what I mean? It's a whole different mindset of, of, of music with, with, with doing this. So if I, if I have a piece of music where uh, someone sends to me to record, um, I will consider all the choices if I have the time to do so. <clears throat> Does that happen at the kit or away from the kit? Do you, do you sit both. and ponder while listening both. or is it all while the sticks are moving? Both. Uh, I will, I'll listen in the car. I'll listen uh, while I'm cooking. I'll listen while I'm taking a shower and getting ready to, to go somewhere. Um, I'll do that. And then now with this rig, I can record myself and then go in and listen to it later and comb through it and go, yep, yep, yep. Nah, that's you can do something better there. That, that, no, that's that's annoying. You know, I can go through all, all, all the choices until I've found something that I think um, is right for the music, and then hopefully the the artist will will agree. You know, um, but that that's that's the process that I've been involved with here for the the last couple of years of doing it that way. That's I've I've enjoyed that process. So at that point. Are you already hearing the sounds? You're hearing the snare sound. You're hearing the cymbal sounds. Like, is that decision yeah. made soon? Um, it's it's sometimes made soon, and then sometimes it'll come into focus later. I might go, you know what? I I, I need I need a little darker, jazzier ride cymbal for this. Or, ooh, you know what? Let's let's overdub a uh, um, uh, uh, sizzle cymbal with a mallet there. Mm. Uh, all of a sudden, if I hear things uh, uh, enough. I mean, I, at the same time, I don't want to, you know, gild the lily either, but uh, I, all of a sudden something will, will go, uh, that would be nice there. Or, or let's do a snare overdub. Uh, let, let's, let's use a, a, a different snare for, for the bridge. Uh, I, I, I sort of like having these ideas come to me uh, over time. And um, when I have that sort of time, I, I, I feel like I've, I've made the, the right choice. I feel like I've, uh, th this is, this is what I want to hear from the piece of music. And it's a, it's an idea and a performance that, um, I'd be proud of. So that that's the, the, the perspective I, I come from. <clears throat> have you ever but, painted yourself into a corner and been like, Oh, I gotta just <laughs> scratch it and start <laughs> over. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think sometimes simplicity will win the day um you, you know like what when when i did my record i had a, a learning experience where i'd a i'd never sung before i'd never been the singer 
And there's one song in particular, uh, Ad Lib Everything. It was in 6-8, and I thought, ooh, you know, there's a couple spots here for some, uh, a couple cool drum things. And I did the vocals first, and then when I did the drums and I tried those ideas, it was like, it, I would have looked at myself like this if I was singing. I would have gone, <laughs> I know that look. <laughs> you okay? All right. It didn't work. It didn't work. It took from the song. It was like all of a sudden there's a breath and fancy drum fill. Thank you. And now back to the story. <laughs> it totally wrecked the vibe. And I thought, man, I hope I, I hope I, I hope I don't do that all the time. You know, uh, <laughs> but you know, it, it, it turns out that, you know, even with the, the fortress of, <laughs> years of experience that, that i've had that every now and then the drummer's ego still wants to go yeah here's a little something <laughs> you know and, and on that song it didn't work it distracted from the story it distracted from the mood so i just played a simple very simple fill that did what it was supposed to it was a fill but it wasn't like a you know look at me drum moment it just kept the six eight triply rolling into the next uh, uh, line and therefore it was a cohesive linear chorus of a song without these little explosions of of drum coolness uh breaking up a story mm. wow that opens up a whole different kind of worms maybe we can touch on it because i am really bad about i will always do the simplest i'm afraid to take a chance when i'm in the studio like you know what is the cue that maybe maybe you should step forward here and give us something to, to push this section or the song somewhere you know well we're drummy look i mean f first off s simple it's it's always going to work you know playing you know crash or it's always going to work and you don't have to cure cancer with every drum fill that you do you know um that being said, th there, there is some excitement when something just happens, or even if it's a fill that you worked on and now it's the red lights on and you do it, you know, mm -hmm. um, I, I, I always think about this one example. Um, are, are you hip to the, the uh, Bill Myers record called images with Vinnie Caliuta from 1986? I am not, I will be though. Okay. Check, check out that record because when, when I, whenever I think of courage and going for it, that's the record that sticks out in my mind because um, both sides of the record were recorded live with a full orchestra, rhythm section, you know, like, uh, you know, like Mike Landau and Larry Carlton and Neil Steubenhaus, you know. A-list guys with a full horn section and a full orchestra, live directed two track. So it's being mixed as it's being recorded. And side one is like a 20 minute suite and side two is a 20 minute suite. So if you screw up at minute 16, back to the top, everybody, and you've just cost someone thousands of dollars in you know, 1986 money. Mm -hmm. And Vinny's playing is so fearless on this uh so ampm voyager lift, lift prelude lift off some, something like that uh it's a shuffle and he does a couple drum breaks in there 
that are just jaw-dropping and astonishing. And then when you think of the high-pressure situation of everyone in that room live, everyone in the, the, the control room live mixing this direct-to-digital two-track, the courage to play the way he did. And you know he's reading this stuff down. He's got nine charts with, you know, five, five uh, you know, uh, uh, music stands just full of music. And he's just reading this stuff down, probably with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> you know, it's astonishing when you, when you listen to that record, thinking of it in, in those terms. So I, I'm always inspired by that sort of courageousness. Um, I can't say that I've, uh, done that in a situation like that where there's 50 people recording at the same time but that 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 might prove some inspiration to to listen to that record and that next time you just might go for something um with a little bit more danger or flair mm. i don't know <clears throat> all right we're getting towards the end here i have two i have a nerdy question for you Sure. The Phil, I'm not, not like this hasn't been an hour of Nerdfest, but uh, the Phil Collins snare drum sound. What is the key? Oh boy, uh, I, which which era? Which which record? Oh, I'm thinking of you had posted. I think it was the Piccolo era. You had posted a video or oh, a photo okay. of a Piccolo. Yeah, he well he used the uh, the Noble and Cooley Piccolo for a while. Yeah, and I, I did I did a little drum thing for a buddy of mine where I had to play a. Uh, um, do they know it's Christmas time? So I, I I posted that. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that was his, that was his sound for for a little while. Um, that that's a great sound. He also used a big deep noble and coolie for a while. He used uh, he, he used a, he had a fives acrylic drum in the in the 70s. Like I also love his drum sound on um, Selling England by the Pound. That's that snare drum. His ghost notes are really really beautiful there's a beautifully recorded record too especially for it being 1973 um i think that record is a prog masterpiece beginning to end and phil was only 23 i think when he recorded that so mm. um, check, check out selling england by the pound if you don't know that one um but yeah and phil's you know phil's sound is also a lot to do with a lot of processing and what what goes on with with the knobs i, I can't profess to to know about that stuff but I know that I know that Jerry Murata sort of helped usher in that get gated sound because I, I, as Jerry tells it, he was working with Hugh Padgham on the gated thing. Then Phil Collins came in and did two songs on Peter Gabriel's third record, and then immediately took that sound. And uh, you know, because Peter Gabriel would take forever for records, and, and it's, it's quite possible mm. that, that that Phil Collins sort of beat them to the punch with that sound. So that became known as the Phil Collins sound. And I, and I think Jerry was a little like, wait a second. <laughs> we spent 10 years working on that. Sound. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, you, you can't go wrong with a, with a noble and Cooley snare drum. And that, that, that piccolo snare drum definitely has that, uh, you know, like I, I wish it would rain down uh, that track, that, that record. Well, what was mm -hmm. that one? Guka, guka, dishka. That that's got a nice high pitch crack slap to it. Yep. All right. Last question. What was your first snare drum? Uh, my first snare drum that was a real one was uh, a Rogers Power Tone. So I don't know if you can see much of it, but like that, there's a little jazz kit right there. You can see the 12 inch tom. Mm -hmm. That was uh -huh. my father's Slingerland kit, 1969. 
same year I was born. And uh, he had a Rogers power tone. And around 1980, I got my first sonar kit and I had a six and a half, you know, steel snare. And at that time, I didn't think anyone cool was playing Rogers. Rogers is kind of on the way out. And I wanted a splash and a china more than anything. So stupidly, I traded that Rogers power tone in for a, a china and a splash. Both of them are broken within a year. And a 10-year-old has no idea the sentimental, sentimentality of his father's snare drum. Um, so I always regretted that uh, deeply that I got rid of that drum. I, I found one uh, around 2002 from Don Bennett uh, when he had his place in Seattle. Uh, a mint condition Rogers power tone, complete with the Rogers bottom head, the original snare wires and uh, 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 the, the, the cords. And when I put it on that kit, it was, I got to say, there's a little bit of waterworks seeing Rogers power tone uh, back, <clears throat> back where it, it should be on that, that drum set. So yeah, that was, that was the first real snare drum. That wasn't one of the little kitty drum sets that I got when I was, uh, you know, three years old. Nice. Well, so what should everyone check out? Check out your Drumeo coaches. How's that work? Uh, well, you, you have to be a member of Drumeo. So if, if you subscribe to Drumeo, you have, uh, not only all of Rock Drumming Masterclass, which came out a couple of years ago at your disposal, which is 15 hours of, uh, 15 hours of me. Um, <laughs> and then you have the Drumio Coach Sessions, which are all archived um, right now. And we're going to be doing episode 39. So there, there should be about 52 by the time the year comes to a close. But you, you have access to... Um, thousands and thousands of 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 things and thousands of hours of all sorts of drum related stuff uh you could check out uh, the latest sticks record crash of the crown my record last flight home um uh todd Zuckerman's uh fried chicken and baked beans uh, <laughs> what else i got going on uh <laughs> you can go to a sticks show but don't expect <laughs> to see todd he's not going to be anywhere where you can see him <laughs> uh, i'll be in the kitchen cooking up the fried chicken <laughs> all right thanks todd that's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Todd Zuckerman. If you have any requests, please email me, mike at drumfactordirect.com. Also, um, drop a review over on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. That really helps get this show spreading to all the drummers around the world. Thank you again for listening. Appreciate all the support. And we'll see you next week.